Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. On the pod today, we have Editor-in-Chief Jordan Valerie. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Nathan. Joined by Senior Contributor Dylan Christine. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Jordan. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. Stay tuned. We've got a discussion of the news coming up, and a little bit later, we'll be doing a deep dive into the Virginia elections coming up this November. We're going to be interviewing Josh Stanfield, the Executive Director of Activate Virginia. I also like the article that somebody wrote about um, the Harvard fellowships and they were like, Harvard fellowships don't matter anyway. So this is stupid. And Chelsea Manning's awesome. I don't know if the article actually said Chelsea Manning's awesome, but I think she's awesome. Jordan, you think Chelsea Manning's awesome? Yeah. The picture I took with her is the background on my phone. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You met Chelsea Manning? What? <laughs> yeah. I was at the ACLU office because I worked there over the summer and she came in for a day and I just kind of stared at her and didn't really say anything. It was oh my God. like one of the worst moments. Of, well, it was great, but also terrible because I, I just stared at her and said nothing, but I got a picture. How did you ask for the picture? Did you just like hold up your phone? <laughs> No, I, someone else who like actually knew her asked if I can get it. So it worked out. Nice. Yeah. That is the most amazing story I've ever heard. So what exactly happened with the Harvard thing? Because I just want to make sure our story's straight. It's like they invited her. Yeah, the CIA director said, I'm not going to speak there if she's a fellow. And then she was gone. And then she had good tweets in response. The Manning thing and the Kaepernick thing come together because I'm starting to wonder, when does this really become the state infringing on freedom of speech, right? Pompeo is technically sort of an arm of the administration as someone who's appointed. Trump is like, get that son of a bitch out of the NFL. Like, when are we going to look at this and say, this is the administration cracking down on what people can and can't say and where people can and can't speak? And that's not okay. There's also Jamel Hill calling for her firing. So they're calling for private citizens to lose their jobs or lose fellowships. That's like what freedom of speech is meant to protect, right? That's what the First Amendment is from the government cracking down on stuff like that. It's quite literally like an assault on First Amendment rights. So I posted something very similar to that on my personal Facebook, and I was shocked at some very smart people coming back and saying something like, oh, well, there doesn't mean that there aren't social consequences of it. And like, there was a, a gentleman who was in law school who was basically like, the right to speak is absolute and the right to protest is absolute, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences. And the whole thing is like, Trump is not like some random American, like he's the president. You know what I mean? Like he le he exactly. leads the executive branch. So he's not just a private citizen. Right. Like if my friend who posted that like didn't want to buy Kaepernick's jersey, like that's totally fine. But like Trump has the powers of the military behind him. The he he, he literally runs the executive branch. Like it's astounding that people are just okay with something like this happening and, and not even batting an eye, to be honest. I totally agree. Because I mean, it's different if Harvard on its own, separate from Pompeo, they were having this discussion about does Chelsea Manning represent the values that this fellowship is supposed to hold, right? Like that's a different conversation, whether or not I agree with it is sort of separate than the government, a sort of appendage of the government saying. Like Sean Spicer represents the values of the fellowship. I mean, the man literally lied to the nation for how many months? Well, I think their criteria is something that they, is something, it was pretty vague. And Chelsea Manning, whether or not you agree with her, I mean, that's her story and her actions provoke a lot of really interesting and relevant questions. So it's fine if you don't agree with her, but to say that she can't come speak because you don't even want to have that conversation is different. Oh, so they have 10 visiting fellows. Isn't one Corey Lewandowski? Yeah. Yep. So like, whatever. Corey Lewandowski he adds nothing to anything. I mean, would they rather have someone who served in the military and leaked the truth about war crimes or someone who assaulted a reporter? Well, the best thing on your resume is you got fired by Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know. It's not that great. Well, that goes for both Sean Spicer and Corey Lewandowski. So true. At least Sean Spicer got the Emmys out of it, though. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> I would love to hear this tirade. I want to provoke this. I mean, basically, what the fuck were they thinking? Like, here's a guy that literally was the first step towards putting us on authoritarianism. This is the largest crowd ever to witness an inauguration, period. You know what I mean? It's like, and now you just let him rehabilitate his image. He went all the, on all the late night shows. I mean, it's disgusting. 
But didn't he say on one of the late night shows that the job of the press secretary is not to distinguish fact, it's to be the mouthpiece of the president? Yeah, but that in and of itself is a lie. I mean, the job of the press secretary, at some point, you would hope that they would have morals of some kind that would say, you know what, I can see this picture. There aren't more people at your inauguration. So have you guys been following the Trump-Russia stuff at all? I don't know. There's this thing with like Paul Manafort and they were like, then the lawyers were sitting outside and there was a New York Times reporter who was like overhearing it, which sounds like a bad spy novel. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a good spy novel, to be honest. But it's like so crazy. You would be like, that would never happen. They're not that stupid. Right. Like Tom Clancy couldn't even dream this shit up. Yeah. He would write that and his editors would be like, no, no, Tom, rewrite that part. It's not believable. I think there have been like so many comparisons to Nixon, but this feels like Nixon, if the administration was just wildly incompetent and treasonous. Yes, yes, yes. Like Nixon was terrible, but he had a much better sense of what he was doing, as did his administration. This is just a mess of clueless idiots and children. And you could trust that like Nixon would at least have... Yes, his personal self-interest in mind, but generally speaking, he wanted to do something that would benefit the United States of America, like opening up relations with China. That was good. You know, like that dwarfs in comparison to anything that Donald Trump has done. This is a conversation I've been waiting for people to have about the Trump-Nixon comparisons because I, I don't want to like- I don't want to go on record being the guy who defends Richard Nixon. I just want to put that out there right now. I will. They can come at me on Twitter. Come at me on Twitter. You don't people. have a Twitter. Exactly. On Instagram, watch out. Check your mentions. Yeah, I think the media really misjudged the point of election interference because at least I saw a lot of takes saying that it's because Trump is going to improve relations with Russia. Relations are actually kind of worse right now or continuously deteriorating. And I think the point of Putin interfering was much more to destabilize American democracy. And in that sense, it was really, really successful. It's definitely thrown a wrench into people's trust in our electoral system, both Democrats and Republicans, for very different reasons. Trump doesn't know or understand or care to know what this means as a whole for our country because he doesn't understand the system, right? I think the argument we could at least make for Nixon in terms of Watergate specifically, obviously, there's a lot of debate around the question of like, what did the president know and when did he know it? But again, we're, we're talking about people who understand the system, who understand how things are working and who are doing it with sort of a clear end goal in mind that I just feel like is really lacking when we talk about the Trump administration. It's like the Trump administration is like people blindly fumbling. Well, you could say the same thing about Paul Manafort and Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer. I mean, these people know how these institutions work. They've been around quite a while. Yeah, but are they doing it out of a loyalty to Trump or out of a desire for power? I think that also changes when we're talking about why people are doing things. So when we look at Nixon aides and people around Nixon, I mean, there's a desire for power, but that loyalty base was so strong with some of those people. And the loyalty in the White House, I mean, doesn't really exist. It's like Game of Thrones style. Well, he's a ruler by fear. We have Joffrey as president. I mean, we would all love Jon Snow, but he doesn't exist. Can we talk about Kaepernick? I feel like we didn't talk about that. Kick it off. Get the pun. I did. Yes. Good football pun, Nathan. Colin Kaepernick has taken so much heat because he has spearheaded this campaign of kneeling during the national anthem, which is totally within his right. And then now all of a sudden, all these other players are doing it, which I very much support. But it irritates me that Colin took all this heat. I think public opinion is shifting on this. And I think today is actually a really big day for it. Just because with Donald Trump calling out these players, even the owners are like, these guys have a right to do whatever they want. And the moment that you start attacking the Constitution, we're all going to be in trouble. I don't know. I, I just feel like it's really arbitrary as to who they're going after, who they think they can attack, and who they think is weak enough to then like have it stick. And I just, I feel bad that Kaepernick is the one who has taken this when so many other people have kneeled and have come out with statements. And Martellus Bennett came out with that political cartoon. And there's just so, there's been so much support and Kaepernick has just taken the brunt. I just don't think it's fair. And it really irritates me. 
All right, so Jordan, you want to talk about Flint? The Flint water crisis began in April 2014 with contaminated water devastating the almost 60% black and about 40% poor town of Flint, Michigan. Government officials aware of the crisis, including members of Republican Governor Rick Snyder's administration, and perhaps even Governor Snyder himself did nothing, though criminal prosecutions are now very slowly making their way through the system. And earlier this week, a study found that, quote, fertility rates decreased by 12% among Flint women and fetal death rates increased by 58% after April 2014. You can support the victims of the water crisis by going to helpforflint.com forward slash action. And to think that we just put another $60 billion into the military. A running theme throughout almost all of the stories we've talked about is black communities and individuals being targeted, or in this case, ignored by the government, whether it be the federal government, state government, municipal government. Yeah, I completely agree with what Jordan said. This is like the perfect storm of intersectionality, right? Women, women of color, arguably the most forgotten community, especially in terms of things like public health. And just to see these statistics should be staggering and disgusting and should should have provoked action long ago because this isn't it's not a secret the way that this sort of poisoning is going to affect people's health right this is this isn't something we don't know anything about this is you know well observed well documented science and what's wild about this is it's very possible that there are other cities like flint across the united states that are just getting no attention at all not that flint is getting any attention either I mean, they've been without water now for over three years, which is a wild statistic in and of itself. But we, we don't even really know how many other cities are afflicted by this. I can say with 100% confidence, I know I've read about other cities afflicted, but I can't name a single one. That really speaks to how little attention it's gotten, that even like being aware that this is happening throughout the country in places like Louisiana, I can't name a single city, I can't name a single person. And it just goes to show how skewed the priorities are. I mean, you have money that's available and you have politicians that are trying to, instead of help these communities or even help Puerto Rico, who's been devastated by a hurricane, you have Congress who is upping spending on the military. What are we doing? Like, why are these people our elected officials and why can't we focus on the things that matter? I live in Pennsylvania, so this is something obviously that locally I read about. And I have two headlines right now, 18 cities in Pennsylvania with a higher lead exposure than Flint. This is a really common problem that we need to be addressing in a lot of different places. Yeah, for sure. And continuing with the theme of women of color being ignored, and especially black women, there's been a lot of talk over the past week of black women being ignored by the Democratic Party. I think black women who are the base the percentage is 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton, but confidence in the Democratic Party has gone down by, I think, over 10 points. I think that makes a lot of sense, given that Democrats have pretty much talked about abandoning marginalized people. Black women especially delivered Democrats the biggest victories they've had since Lyndon Johnson, yet they're being ignored. There's kind of lip service given by uh, DNC leaders, but there hasn't been much action, which is like a huge betrayal of the base and speaks to why I'm not that confident that Democrats can win in 2020, because I'm not sure if the party from the top down really has an understanding of who it needs to win. I think it's really a shame that the Democrats are not Focusing on their base, totally agree that these people should be their base, as well as anyone who is frustrated by income inequality and class warfare and people vote against their self-interest pisses me off and I don't know why. And it's like, they're just getting bad information. Like if the Democrats could accurately convey like what it was in their platform, like I don't know why they don't win in landslides every time. You know what I mean? A lot of people we characterize as voting not in their self-interest actually do vote in their self-interest because, you know, especially for Donald Trump and more subtly for other Republicans, white supremacy, male supremacy, misogyny is in their best interest. Yeah, but like that white working class voter in Kentucky almost just had his health care stripped three or four different times. You know what I mean? Like that's not in his best interest. 
Yeah, but the thing is, like, Donald Trump won all white people, and I think a big mistake is thinking that his base is poor people. Mm, true. Folks making under 50,000 went to Hillary Clinton. Folks making over 50,000 went to Donald Trump. His base is largely, like, suburban people, and Donald Trump's base isn't really poor people, and I think a lot of this makes sense. And the perceptions of who does and does not deserve welfare or health care plays a big role in this. Yeah, I totally agree with literally everything Jordan just said. The other thing I was going to say is that one of my main frustrations with the Democratic Party right now is that we have such a focus on an economic message, which is extremely important. But I feel like economic message is always translating to white, lower middle class industrial worker, right? And that's that's not where we need to be focusing our party message. As a white woman, I am certainly more economically privileged in terms of a lot of these situations than women of color. And I think that we really need to be thinking about not just what is the party base, but if we're going to be focusing an economic message, it needs to be helping those who are really disenfranchised by the system. There's not enough focus there. Yeah, and there's this misunderstanding that you have to choose between marginalized people and economic yes. policies. I think that's just so wrong-headed. Those things really go hand in hand. Identity politics is used as a very negative word or term. That as a term was created by black women, specifically referring to how if the barriers for black women are gone, then the barriers for everyone are gone. So identity politics have inherently always been about getting rid of all barriers, getting rid of all forms of oppression for everyone. And that's really been distorted and forgotten about. And I think that's something that needs to be brought back to its original framing. Yeah, I like how you said that. I mean, I think that basically, when the Democrats find themselves like micro targeting different identities, like, that's when you're gonna fail, like you need a message that has broad appeal um, whether you're a white working class or a minority working class, like an economic message should resonate with you, number one. And number two, like there's no need for us to continue to divide ourselves. Like the only label that matters in my mind is American. And if you can vote, like we should be trying to move our country forward is like kind of how I think of it. Um, not to say that, you know, different marginalized groups don't face struggles, but like if everybody rises together, we all win. I think it though also depends on if we're targeting that economic message, it has to be sort of someone as like the baseline, right? And if the baseline of our economic message is white middle class industrial men, it's going to change the way that vision is played out. And I'm thinking of like Linda Johnson when we think about the Great Society, right? LBJ, for all of his complications and nuance, and we could talk about that at a different time, recognize that. When we're thinking about that, we're thinking about the, the poorest of the poor, right? So if our target then becomes those at the bottom, then I would agree with this idea that maybe a rising tide raises all boats. But if we're talking about middle class industrial men, I just have a lot of problems with that being like, well, you know, everyone else sit back because we're going to make it better. Because I feel like that's a lot of what Bernie Sanders' message is, is like, we're targeted at them. And then once that rises, once we make it better for them, then everyone else will be better off. Well, I don't want to wait for that. And I certainly don't expect women of color to wait for that either, right? Like women of color as the baseline need to be sort of front and center. And then when they rise, the rest of us will also rise. Yeah, exactly. I think that's my big problem with Bernie Sanders. He centers white men. I think Cole epitomizes this narrative. Coal is actually a really tiny industry. Arby's employs more people than coal, but coal is kind of like, it's the white working class, it's the male job, even though it's really not the job of the working class anymore. But that's kind of who our politics centers around, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have sympathy for the people who are going to lose their jobs, but it does mean that we should really start focusing on how to make sure they don't fall through the cracks. And that means being realistic and recognizing that those jobs are going to be gone forever. Yes. Wasn't there a statistic that when Donald Trump was like, I created 50,000 new coal jobs and everyone was like, there are only 50,000 coal jobs in the United States. It's like, calm your pants. I would have thought there were a lot more to be honest. Ah, US employment in coal mining peaked in 1923 when there were 863,000 coal miners. Mm, the good old days. When white men ruled the world and the rest of us just, you know, sat around and did nothing. The average number of coal mining employees declined to 50,500 in 2016. Can we talk about healthcare? Like, just like oh, two sentences on the state of healthcare right now. 
So Republicans are pushing forward on this idea of the Graham-Cassidy health care plan, which is a health care bill that is even more right-wing than the one they voted down in the summer because it takes the funds that states would get and puts them into a block grant, which then means that potentially less people could be covered and there's less money in the system overall, which then you follow that out logically, means less people are covered. So even though we do not yet have a CBO score because there's not enough time for the CBO to score the bill in time for it to vote, we're most likely looking at less coverage and most scholars agree on that. And the vote looks like it's John McCain's a no, Rand Paul from Kentucky is saying he's a no, but I'm not confident rooting for him. Susan Collins is leaning towards no. Lisa Murkowski from Alaska is like hedging, but we're hoping that she has the moral courage that we think she does and she's gonna vote no. Potentially Ted Cruz is also a no, don't even know what he's thinking at this point. So will it come to a vote? I mean, if they give Murkowski a carve out for Alaska and she caves, which I hope she doesn't. I love you, Lisa Murkowski. Don't do that. Can we talk about that for a second? Their bribe to her was saying, you need to vote for this plan, but we'll let you keep Obamacare. Like, how ridiculous is that? But it speaks to how desperate they are. They're willing to keep Obamacare for the state of Alaska because they're so desperate to take away Obamacare and get rid of anything involving Obama that they can compromise and keep Obamacare for a single state. And it just nothing has any consequences anymore. I think that's really the most frustrating thing for me is that when we're trying to talk about politics and policy and it's like everyone can just do whatever they want because there's no consequences, right? It should tank the bill for them to say, we're going to bribe Lisa Murkowski so she can keep what she already has. But just kidding, this bill is better, right? That's crazy talk. That makes no sense. That should kill this bill. But because of this like weird twilight zone that we live in, it doesn't kill the bill. And that is just so frustrating. Mic drop. All right. In Around the World this week, Trump's Department of Homeland Security is terminating temporary protected status for Sudan on November 2nd, 2018. The Black Alliance for Just Immigration commented that while TPS is far from a permanent solution to the vast challenges facing black immigrants from Sudan, it offers an important refuge from the ongoing conflict drought, famine, and food insecurity in the nation. This all comes as the Senate approved an $80 billion annual increase in military spending. Moving to Europe, Germany's far-right party won 13% of the vote in the German elections today, and this is actually the first time a far-right party has had seats in parliament since the Nazis held power during World War II. As we all know, Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, and the whole island still does not have power. If you're in a position to donate, please consider giving to the Hurricane Maria Community Recovery Fund, the Puerto Rico Real-Time Recovery Fund, the American Black Cross, and the Initiativa Communitaria. We'll post these links on our website. Stick around. We got a great interview coming your way. On the pod today, we're joined by the executive director of Activate Virginia, Josh Stanfield. Hey, Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, nice to be on the uh, call. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you. You and I actually first connected after Charlottesville when we were trying to kind of coordinate a response, and we wanted to bring you on to the podcast today as part of our progressive push for 2018, because before we get to 2018, it actually turns out that there are important elections to come still in 2017. To kick things off, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing at Activate Virginia and what elections are happening this year in 2017? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the focus on Virginia has been lost in the constant stream of Donald Trump uh, intrigue. So it's it's nice to have someone talk about it, right? Uh, Activate Virginia, essentially, we were started after the Democratic National Convention last year. Uh, our board members were Bernie Sanders uh, national delegates uh, from Virginia, and we were at the convention. And afterwards, we realized how critical it is to take a local and state level approach. And for us, it just happens to be the case that we found ourselves in a commonwealth that has over 100 elections in 2017. So we're really first up uh, for the country. And this was pre-Women's March. Uh, so we started to get to work at the end of 2016. We created a, a state political action committee, that's Activate Virginia, uh, just to have a you know legal conduit through which uh, to act politically. We looked at the nature of a state government in Virginia and we found a lot of really troubling and interesting issues 
And one of them was the lack of competition. In 2015, we had uh, elections in Virginia. In 2017, you know, we're going to have a House of Delegates elections, a governor, governor's election, lieutenant governor, and attorney general all this year. And we looked at 15 at our House of Delegates elections and noticed that over 70% of incumbents were unchallenged. They just, you know, automatically won. And we found that incredible at the state level in one of our houses to have such a remarkably undemocratic phenomenon. That's really an astounding statistic. 70% went uncontested. Yeah, I believe it was 71 seats in uh, in 2015. And we thought, okay, the first thing we can do is begin recruiting quickly for for the House of Delegates races in 2017. So that was the that was what we started doing at the end of 16 and into 17. And we noticed another undemocratic phenomenon in Virginia, which is that we really have no campaign finance law to speak of. That is to say, there are no limits for individuals, for corporations, for PACs, for super PACs. There are no limits at all for our state level elections. So for example, uh, you know, any individual saying California could give $2 million to a House of Delegates candidate in Virginia, totally fine. This creates a system that, as you can imagine, becomes extremely oligarchic and troublesome. But the first step was the recruiting. And now that we're in 2017 and we have, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general election, and then 100 House of Delegates, this year uh, we've set, I believe, over a 20 year record in that we have 60, I believe, 60 races. Out of 100 that are contested by a major party, as opposed to 29 in 2015. So we really uh, upped the recruiting tremendously and, and, and have set a, a, re- a record in recent uh, Virginia history. Whether that results in wins remains to be seen, right? Yeah, I guess time will tell on that front. But as far as the candidate recruitment side, have you been partnering with any of the other kind of progressive candidate recruitment organizations like Emily's List or Run for Something? Right. Well, in Virginia, at the end of 2016, there really was a general feeling within our party that because of gerrymandering, house seats are unwinnable, sort of a a futile exercise to try to recruit people, especially in districts that say, for example, Hillary Clinton only got 24% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after the Women's March, there was just this incredible... Uh, sort of spike in a, a sense of a civic engagement and responsibility, which in some cases manifested as people just saying, hey, I want to run. You know, four or five groups were were really actively going out and recruiting, especially a candidate, Lee Carter, in the 50th district. He and his wife on their own recruited several candidates in Northern Virginia in 2016. But yes, um, Emerge Virginia has done some of the some of the best candidate trainings uh, this year for female candidates across Virginia. Irene Shin, who works, I think, at CrowdPack, a fundraising organization, she mm-hmm. was independently doing a lot of work. It was decentralized, and there were some of the the major actors. I think Run for Something, they they had a couple of candidates that that emerged through their help. It wasn't so much coordinated. It was more like looking at uh, which Republican incumbents remain unchallenged and then just trying to find candidates that were willing to do it, in some cases with the understanding that it would be an incredibly difficult, a remarkable victory if it were to happen, right? And it sounds like it's definitely an uphill battle when not only is a district gerrymandered, but they have unfettered access to capital. I bet those races are extremely expensive to challenge an incumbent. Well, I'll tell you, I live in the 93rd. I live in Yorktown, a revolutionary uh, uh, city, if you will. And uh, we have incredibly expensive historically elections in the House of Delegates. The last several House of Delegates elections in my district, the Democrat had to raise at least 750 grand to compete and you know the races would be about two million dollars spent this is one out of a hundred lower house races in virginia where you could hit uh, 1.5 or two million dollars spent keep in mind once you win this seat you're not even making 20 grand a year salary right and and you're and you're spending potentially half a million you know 750k to win a seat that only pays you know 17 18 grand a year it, it's mind boggling and it, and it really um incredibly difficult to take out incumbents the incumbent protection is actually codified in the nominating process in our code but there's other ways incumbents are protected so yeah it is a really uh, a really intimidating sort of moment to to decide you know what I'm going to run for office and I'm going to run somewhere where there hasn't been a Democrat 
Democrat challenging the Republican incumbent for 10, 12, you know, 15 sure. years. Yeah. So can you break down for our listeners what the current Virginia landscape looks like? Governor Terry McAuliffe is a Democrat, but what about the state Senate and the House of Delegates? Who has control of those? Absolutely. Uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe, Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam, and Attorney General Mark Herring are, you know, at the, at, at the top in the executive. They're all Democrats. Our state Senate, there's a Republican, uh, there's 40, 40 total senators. Republicans have a 21-19 majority. Very slim, right? And but they're not up for election in 2017. The, correct. The Senate races will be in 2019. The House of Delegates now, on the other hand, Republicans have a 66-34 majority out of 100. 66 out of 100 Republicans. Well, and this was critical because, you know, for example, in a special election in my district last year, we were fighting to keep the 34th seat. If we had 33, then the House could overturn a veto. Right, right. With a super majority. That's right. And now it wouldn't be overturned in the Senate, but, you know, symbolically it would be pretty devastating. But no, so, you know, it is very lopsided in the House of Delegates. And, and my theory is that it's because Democrats have not been competing since 2010, since the redistricting. They just haven't been competing. That's the landscape. Barely Republican Senate, lopsided Republican House of Delegates, Democratic executive. Now for the Democratic executives... They are running for re-election or are they term limited or what does that look like? That's right. The Virginia governor uh, cannot run for re-election. So Governor McAuliffe is finished. This is his first term. It's four years and he's finished. Um, our Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam is running for governor. As the Democrat, he won the primary against uh, former Congressman Tom Perriello. And so Ralph Northam is our gubernatorial candidate. And our current attorney general, Mark Herring, is running for a second term. So that's really interesting because it's there seems like there could be a lot of turnover in the executive branch. Also makes it even, even more important election year. You just described that Republicans have a 32-seat advantage in the House of Delegates. Do you really think that there's an opportunity there for Democrats to flip it? Is there going to be a blue wave as kind of the test of Trump, if you will? You know, this this is an interesting question because last year when we were talking about recruiting candidates all across the state, the refrain from uh, the party elite would be, uh, no, that's ridiculous. Don't waste resources. They don't have a shot. Gerrymandering. And now we hear a lot of the same party figures going around the state talking about flipping the house. I don't believe, you know, I think it would be an exceptional, really unbelievable state of affairs if we can flip the House of Delegates this year. I believe in 2019, Democrats can control the House of Delegates and the state Senate and the executive branch in Virginia. But this year, flipping the House to me seems incredibly uh, unlikely. Uh, I think we can pick up a lot of seats. It's just I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm not that optimistic. In yeah, general. that would be a, a big hurdle to overcome. Well, you have to see these districts. You know, we still have a, a case that went to the Supreme Court of the U.S. Uh, the Bethune Hill case on gerrymandering, and now it's been kicked back down to to the Circuit Court in Virginia on gerrymandering. But for our House of Delegates, it is incredible. So picking up optimistically eight seats, nine seats. That would be just a tremendous pickup because once you start moving from there, then we're looking into, you know, if we can win uh, more than that, we're looking into some real radical transformations of the electorate. And we'll have to start thinking about sort of new paradigms of how one goes about campaigning in Virginia if that ends up happening. Definitely. So something that you touched on a little bit earlier is the lack of campaign finance regulation. Activate Virginia, you said, was founded by Bernie delegates from the DNC. What would change if Activate Virginia's candidates got into office and Democrats kind of were able to take control of the executive, the state Senate and uh, the House of Delegates? Well, what's critical to understand is that, you know, we don't have candidates per se. We haven't endorsed and we're not going to endorse. So people that we recruited, it's not like, you know, Activate Virginia is stamped on them. I mean, behind Got the it. scenes, we have really deep connections with a lot of candidates, uh, personal and political. The best way to see who's been aligned with us in one effort is uh, during the primary, we put together a pledge for candidates to refuse to accept campaign contributions from our biggest corporate donor to both political parties in Virginia, Dominion Energy, which is our electric utility, and Appalachian Power, which is another uh, utility in Virginia. And we got 
you know, a tremendous amount of candidates. I believe we had 76 total candidates sign this pledge, which is really unbelievable because all of our Democrats, except one or two, take money from these entities. This was an example of what we had planned to do originally. When you, when you recruit candidates, or at least when you have candidates running across the state, then you have the ability to create a megaphone to elevate issues into a narrative. We got on the front page of the Washington Post, the Richmond Times, because we could get a coalition together and say, hey, look, we don't want to take this money from these two donors. We believe this is important. And although many of us might not win, together as a group of candidates, we're able to sort of hijack up the microphone and say to the state, look, there are groups of people who believe that we shouldn't take this money. So that's one coalition we built. Now, I'm, I'm whipping a coalition today as we speak to support two pieces of legislation. If we could take control, it would be incredible. I mean, you would get legislation across the board getting passed through Virginia. On the campaign finance side, though, it's difficult to know where our incumbents stand, our incumbent Democrats in Virginia. This is why it becomes uh, tricky to foresee because... They've been accepting the contributions. Well, they've been accepting the contributions, but they also have not been enthusiastic about, for example, the pledge that we created in the primary and the tremendous amount of candidates that signed on board. Did you have any incumbents sign on to that pledge? Yes, uh, Delegate Sam Rasool, who represents the city of Roanoke. But to be honest, because of the primary dynamics, even incumbents who might have agreed with it couldn't have signed on. But, but you know, the, the concern is, yes, almost all of them take money from all sorts of sources, but specifically these two utilities we're talking about. But at the same time, there are uh, incumbents like Delegate Marcus Simon, who is incredibly passionate about campaign finance reform. And you'll see that he attempts to carry legislation legislation, but it always gets just completely destroyed in subcommittee. So we can't even get this stuff out of subcommittee in a Republican-controlled legislature. If we had Democratic controls of these committees, then we could get this stuff to to the floor and we could actually see where people break. We could force people to have to vote on this, which they don't have to do right now. This pledge we had and then the effort we're whipping right now, this coalition on these two specific pieces of legislation, it's very much symbolic. But by injecting this into the conversation and, and forcing people to confront that this is a concern, popular support will come first, and then the legislators, especially the Democrats, will have no choice but to follow. Uh, this has been polled by the Washington Post in Virginia this year. 66% of Virginians oppose our gubernatorial candidates taking money from these regulated utilities from Dominion Energy. Mm. I believe that sentiment translates to all of the elected officials. People don't want them taking money from entities they're regulating. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into what exactly you do at Activate Virginia because <laughs> um, it, it sounds like you know you recruit candidates, you whip candidates into signing on to pledges, but but you don't endorse candidates. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about what you do as a PAC? In Virginia, you know, we set up a nonprofit corporation and then we registered it as a state political action committee with our board of elections. What that means is that all of our expenditures and all of our income has to be, you know, disclosed publicly through regular reporting that is available online to anyone. So like literally if if our pack spends $50 on gas to get us to an event, that will show up online for anyone to see. Um, just as if we take some amount of money from anyone, you'll see it all. Really what it does is by, by setting up a committee, it allows us to be engaged in electoral politics and not just be a set of individuals because we also sit on the state central committee for the Democratic Party of Virginia and we're all new to this. You know, before 2016, we had no PAC. We weren't in the political party systems in Virginia. You know, we were politically minded, but not active. And so by creating this uh, this entity, it allows you to take contributions, distribute funds to candidates. And all of this, again, is public. So can you talk a little bit about the platform of Activate Virginia beyond campaign finance reform? And It is kind of hard to fathom what exactly is Activate Virginia. And that's because, I don't know, maybe it's because we're millennials. We have a, a certain mindset that is not really conducive to vertical hierarchy, uh, to having any sort of rigid organizational structure. So really, it is just a set of individuals. We are uh, politically active in our local committees, in the state central committee, in all sort of realms of Virginia politics. And what we try to create with Activate Virginia 
is a financial entity, a legal shell whereby we could, if necessary, uh, take money and support campaigns materially. But what it what it is, is is sort of intangible. We don't have membership. Our email listserv, like we don't have members per se, and we don't have Activate Virginia hyphen Charlottesville or Richmond. Right after the Women's March, I toured around the state, went to all of these new emerging groups across the state as they were having their first, second, third, fourth meetings, and spoke in a very nonpartisan way about small d democratic reform. And in doing this, you know, we were able to sort of spread the idea that there's an entity here in Virginia that is focused on democratic reform in a very radical way. Mm-hmm. And however that manifests itself, it's the, if it's these sort of like pop-up projects like a pledge to take advantage of just a moment where we see the way the news stories are coming out, the narrative feels such that now's the time, if we whip a coalition quickly and get stories out of it, we can enter in. It's sort of a tactical, fluid way to operate politically, but we still have to have this stable shell with a name and a brand. Uh, so that we can remain, you know, of the political industry as it exists right now, but while staying incredibly flexible and able to respond to what's an incredibly unpredictable political situation in Virginia. No one expected Charlottesville. Come on. No, that was, no one could have predicted that. Spe- speaking of Charlottesville, I think this is a good opportunity to kind of transition into it. What I'm curious about is actually the fight over Confederate monuments, because Charlottesville obviously became ground zero for this conversation. Are you seeing a big push to remove Confederate monuments across Virginia? It depends on you know how we would define uh big and within which community. So if you look within the activist community, well, for sure, in in that sense, these things are just absolutely grotesque. They're remnants of a Virginia history that, uh, trust me, nobody's going to forget by removing these monuments. The history mm-hmm. is very well known. It's not as if most of these statues came up immediately after the Civil War. I mean, you have to understand the context of Virginia. We created a new constitution in 1902. And if you read the proceedings while they were trying to figure out the details of this constitution, which essentially shrank the electorate and was meant almost entirely simply to disenfranchise, re-disenfranchise African Americans and institute what's broadly known as Jim Crow, these statues come up within that context. Now, some are, you know, 1870s or 80s, but a lot of them are within this period in the early 20th century when the the conversations that were happening politically in Virginia make it very clear what the intention was. It was to remind Virginia of its history, and that history was a history in which one race dominated another. In fact, one race dominated several other. I mean, if you look at the history of Native Americans in Virginia, it's grotesque. Sure, so that's yeah. that's on the activist side. Broadly in Virginia, what you have to understand is that, is that unlike many other states, and even unlike states in the South, Virginia has a historically independent-minded and conservative, not necessarily politically, but culturally mainstream, especially political elite. Whereas a lot of the states in the South, the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, they had populist movements and progressive movements, or at least demagogic, left-wing or populist rabble-rousers or whatever. We never, we didn't have that in Virginia. We had a few kind of semi-moments, like the Readjuster Party or Henry Howe in the 1970s, but we don't have have much of a radical history in terms of the politics of Virginia in the past. So with the broad electorate, it really is difficult to know uh, what do they feel about these things. So along the lines of removing Confederate monuments, I think this is something that comes with time and it comes through electing more diverse representation. Can you talk a little bit about what Activate Virginia is doing to elect more diversity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of the recruiting effort was to make sure that our General Assembly started to look more like the population it's meant to represent. And historically in Virginia, this has never been the case. We have a very white, very male, rather aristocratic bunch. If you look at their backgrounds, a lot of them have a lot of family in government. And so this year, on the other hand, we have, and there have been statistics showing that economically, uh, are the candidates running this year are closer to the middle class. They don't own second homes. They might be renters, right? They don't own 250K in stock. So just in terms of economics, we have a much more representative group of, you know, your average Virginian. But also keep in mind that we have 
just a handful of LGBTQ members in our General Assembly right now. And running this year, I think we have six LGBTQ candidates, which is incredible, including Danica Rome running in 13. And if Danica wins, she'll be the first transgender woman to uh, be elected in Virginia government ever, maybe nationwide in state legislatures. We have uh, Elizabeth Guzman in District 31st. And Elizabeth, uh, if she's elected, she'll be the first Latina ever elected to Virginia's legislature. Just an incredible realization to have to deal with that it's taking this long. It's really mind-boggling. And we have just an incredible number of women in general, first of all. And I think this is the biggest improvement this year. And this is Emerge Virginia, Virginia's list. I mean, a lot of our incumbent female delegates and senators who have really been trying to help the women candidates that are out there. And then a lot of the Women's March volunteers have been mobilizing for some of these candidates. Uh, in our House of Delegates, maybe 18, 19% female. When I believe women make up the majority of the Virginia population, and I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna see at least three or four new women elected this year. I'm thinking through my head. Yeah, I think we're gonna see a tremendous improvement uh, in the diversity of our House of Delegates. We still have a lot of bars to leap over in terms of the top of the ticket because since uh, Doug Wilder, we haven't really had anything except white men at the <laughs> top of the ticket, right? <laughs> It's yeah, incredible. Yeah, that's, it's but it makes sense when you look at Virginia history. None of this is a coincidence. You know, it's based in a really sordid history, but it makes sense when you start really delving into it. I, I would agree with that. And I think to your point that, you know, when you have the institutions that we've had throughout our history, it's it's hard to overcome those barriers. But it's good to see that finally now in 2017, we, we are making progress there. Are you finding that with the elections that are coming up, there is more energy and passion than normal as a result of the Trump administration? You know, maybe it was initially as a result of the Trump administration, but in Virginia, at least, it has sort of mutated in a way, in a good way, because we, you know, we have all of these elections this year, and this is something none of the other states except New Jersey have to deal with. So, in a sense, you know, whereas if you're in another state, especially if it's not a, you know, relatively progressive state, and you're looking post-Women's March, you have, you have this energized group of individuals collectively getting together and deciding on ways to act politically, not just talk about things, but act. How long will that last? Will that last into 2018? Can you keep that kind of thing going that long? Well, in Virginia, we're lucky enough to have all of these elections in 2017. So in my mind, it's almost, you know, like a booster. We're able to focus everyone. So if anyone gets fatigued about the rapid fire news coming out of Washington and the constant spin and revelations and just, you know, what seems to be the degradations of institutions in the United States, people who could, you know, get fatigued, when they get to that point, we can be there to make the case, hey, you know, you're lucky you live in Virginia. Because we have all of this going on at the local level right now, and you can see the tangible effect of your efforts. So while we do have a lot of new energy in Virginia on federal efforts and on, you know, resisting the Trump administration, whatever that ends up meaning for different people, we've been able to reorient a lot of the new activist energy in Virginia towards our elections because... You know, we have actual human beings now running all across the state. This is a new thing. And now all of a sudden, you know, if you're an energized activist and you want to know how to help, well, you have someone standing right beside you who says, look, I'm running for office. Let's go around our community. Let's knock doors. Let's figure out what the tangible problems here are. I'm going to talk about those. And if enough of us get into office, we can make change starting from the bottom up. And this is sort of the whole mantra. This is the way, you know, political organizing has always been done. This is going to be the way it's done in the future. It's just a matter of taking a more contemporary conceptualization of politics. We conceptualize it as sort of network theory and think about human beings in a different way and organizing in a different way, not so much in terms of vertical hierarchical structure, mm -hmm. but horizontal connectedness and being able to mobilize um, using new technology. But I don't have a baseline from which to gauge. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I lived out of the United States for five years. I came back at the very end of 2015 from Seoul, South Korea, because I saw political realignment, on, honestly, in my mind, of the political parties in a populist opening. So that's really opening. interesting. I, I feel yeah. like there's a couple of things I want to comment on there. First, I think the comment about fatigue is 
totally real. I, I can see it even in my day to day. The constant yeah. barrage of news coming out of Washington, it just wears people down. So I think you're right that it could be to your advantage to have elections so quickly because who knows where we will be come November 2018, number one. And then number two, I'm really interested now in hearing your background. How did you make your way over to South Korea? When did you come back and how did you arrive at Activate Virginia? Then one last question after that and we can call it a night. I was uh, I was born here in Virginia and raised by a single mother, went through the public school system and I graduated from high school in 2005 and went to the University of Pennsylvania in, in Philadelphia until 2009 and I graduated from there and I, studied, I double majored in philosophy and politics but I, I focused on political theory. And I edited books for professors and grad students in political theory and history. Always had a fascination theoretically in politics, but because of the horrible collapse of the economy, uh, you know, I graduated in 2009. I worked in market research and some other stuff. And, you know, I just didn't want to be in an office. So I left the country, you know, and after uh, about a year and a half in Korea, teaching SAT and AP, U.S. history, world history to Korean students, my friends and I started our own academy and sort of college consulting company. And I, and I stayed in Korea for a total of five years uh, in, in Seoul, in the suburbs of Seoul as well. You know, it really was at the end of 2015, I, I didn't have to work that much anymore. You know, I, I wasn't really teaching much anymore. I was doing a lot of reading. I was watching the political scene in America. I always had been. You know, I missed most of the Obama administration. I voted for him and then left the country. And um, Well, we appreciate you know, your vote. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I was watching and I started to see, you know, Bernie Sanders. And I thought, well, this is so fascinating. This guy is getting such an interesting response. Response. And then I saw Trump and I thought, wow, this is a uh this is incredible because the conditions for a party realignment are all there. Historically, it's been 50, 60 years. And if we're talking late 60s, early 70s, um, Southern strategy, the last real flip of the party dynamics, it's about time. And when you look at the condition of our political parties right now, they're both in shambles. Mm -hmm. They're both split in different ways. Obviously, my position is the Republican Party cannot be unified, but it was that opening that opening for a populist appeal that I saw and popular reform, reform that is supposed to reflect the interests of everyday people and reform that is generally accepted by broad swaths of the population. I came back to the United States, partially to start writing a book about my dad, but also to go into politics. I went through the caucus process and was elected a national delegate, went to the convention in Philadelphia and got to see for myself, what does politics look like, uh, not in theory anymore, you know, but in action, as you can imagine, it's totally different. And, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't that I was totally surprised. I mean, I had my own, you know, understanding, you know, cynical understanding of politics in America, but to experience it and to be in, in that particular moment was just, it, it led to a lot of revelations. Mm -hmm. And and that led you to activate that, that, Virginia? That, well, that led, that led me to, with a group of people, decide that, you know, let's go ahead and in some formal way, create a structure so that we can act politically in Virginia and do anything and everything we need to do with the same latitude that, you know, all other political actors have. Got it. That's that's really helpful. And I think it's a, a fascinating story. I'll have to save my questions on North Korea for another time. For our listeners who want to get involved, perhaps donate to your organization, how can they find you in Activate Virginia? Well, they can go to activatevirginia.com org totally spelled out. You know, we haven't been actively soliciting funds from the general public in Virginia because we have so many candidates who are asking for money and we don't want to take money that they would otherwise get. But for people not in Virginia, we'll gladly take your money and put it to <laughs> great use for these candidates. If you go to our website and, you know, there's a donate tab and it'll take you to a crowd pack page where there's a, a basic e explanation of the two sets of precincts we're focusing on this year. So we're not endorsing candidates or working just on, on certain districts, but we're going to the precinct level and we've identified strategic sets of precincts where we can have three-year returns on investments electorally um, and do a lot of other interesting stuff. So yeah, you can check it out on our website. And of course, anyone can email me at uh, josh at activatevirginia.org. You know, I'm very responsive. I do this full-time. Uh, my goal is to eventually get paid minimum wage. I can survive on, on very little. I'm very frugal. Politics are tough hours, so we, we appreciate the work that you're doing. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, it was good to have you. So thanks for your time. 